Good morning, everyone. Welcome. So glad you're here. It's great to see you today. Wherever you're joining us, we are truly, truly grateful that you're a part of this experience. Hey, let me get personal right up front and ask you a question. Has the bottom ever fallen out of your life? You know, that's an expression we use, right? The bottom falling out. That means a time where maybe your hopes and dreams were just shattered or you were tempted to despair. Has that ever happened to you? I believe that if you live in this world long enough, just about every person in one way or another has the bottom fall out of his or her life. You see, pain is the universal language. No matter where you go, no matter what the culture is, pain is just a part of everyone's life. And I I can't help but wonder if maybe some of you this very day are dealing with a health problem that's pretty serious. Some of you maybe live with daily limitations and discomfort. Some of you are facing surgery or some medical procedure. procedure. You're nervous. You're, You're scared about that. Others of you are dealing with relational pain that just sweeps over you, and every day you feel you feel the pain of a, of a broken or struggling relationship, whether it's current or, or from the past. Every person I know is dealing with pain and heartache in some way. The psalmist said in Psalm 88, my soul is full of trouble. Wow, what a statement, huh? And that describes many people. My soul, just full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. Well, guess what? The people to whom this book we call Hebrews was originally written to, if the bottom's falling out of your life, listen, they could identify with you because the bottom had certainly fallen out for them. You see, they were a group, a small group of Jewish Christians That is, they were Jewish in their ethnicity and background, but they had come to be followers of Jesus Christ. They lived in the the 60s AD, that is the first century AD, before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. That happened in 70 AD. So this is before that. They were in the area around Rome, and wow, they had started following Jesus Christ. But guess what? Instead of things getting easier, They got harder, and they had begun to go through persecution and hardship. Some of them even had their property seized from them by the Roman authorities. Some of them were thrown into prison. You read about that in chapter 10. And so they were tempted to go, look, I'm not sure this following Jesus thing really pays off, right? Since we made that decision to follow Christ, it's like the bottom has fallen out of our lives. And instead of life getting easier, it's actually getting harder. And so they were tempted to kind of drift. They were tempted to drift back into Judaism. And the main point of this letter, the purpose of it, is to encourage them not to fall away, but to press on into that promised land that God had for them in their walk with Christ. Now, the passage we're about to look at from Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 19 in just a moment. 
I believe in many ways it represents a pivot point in the whole book. Let me explain what I mean by that. Up until now, I think you'll agree there's been a lot of heavy doctrine, right? Some of you have been going like, wow, you better believe it's been heavy doctrine. But guess what? It changes today a bit. Today, he goes from explanation to application. Today, he moves from doctrine to duty. Today, he moves from the creed, what they're to believe, to how it affects their conduct. So he's going to get very specific here and tell them three things that they need to do when they feel like the bottom is falling out of their lives. And man, I am convinced this is as relevant and as personal as it can possibly be. And many of you listening right now, I just want to say it. God has a personal word. He wants to speak to you through his word today. So I hope that you have ears to hear it. Here's the outline. It's coming straight straight out of the scriptures. He tells them to do these three things. To draw near, hold fast, and consider how. Those, that's our outline, and it comes right out of these three verses from chapter 10. Draw near in verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast. And verse 24 says, let us consider how. I call that the salad bar of the Christian life. Let us, let us, let us, all right? So there it is, three things he tells us to do. And I'm convinced that if we will allow God to sear these principles into our soul, Believe me, you're going to be able to navigate hard times a whole lot better. So let's get started. The first one is, let us draw near. And it starts right here in verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest, over the house of God, let us draw near. Wow, what an invitation. Because we've got this great high priest who cares for us, Jesus our Lord. And through his sacrifice on the cross, he's given us two big things, accessibility to God and acceptability before God. Remember last week, Quick footnote about last week. I said any religion worth its salt does two things. You remember what they are? It makes you clean and it gets you close. It gives you acceptability and accessibility. And I'm struck by the fact here that we've been talking in this series about how God himself tore that veil in the Holy of Holies from top to bottom. In verse 20 here that we just read, it equates the tearing of Jesus' flesh with the tearing of that veil. And so now we have this access to our great high priest who gives us all the things that we need. Now, let me get really, really personal here for just a moment. Don't blurt your answer out, okay? Just think about it. Do you ever kind of get overwhelmed in life by your needs? Do you ever feel like, wow, 
I've got needs today. I, I've got these things I need, either someone or something I need, and wow, I just feel kind of overwhelmed by that. I think most of us feel that way, if we're being honest. Do you know what God's saying to you and me today through his word? Listen, you have a great high priest, a personal high priest named Jesus, who gives you grace and who meets your needs because he knows your needs even better than you do. Now, let, let me get into that just a little bit here. We're talking about drawing near now to God because he's going to meet those needs. Throughout this book, as I've said, the background of this is the Israelites' journey from Egypt into the promised land. And does some of you remember how God promised the, the promised land would be like? It would be a land flowing with milk and honey. Why did God choose milk and honey? He could have chosen any two forms of food or drink to describe this wonderful land he was going to bring them into. Why milk and why honey? I think those words are meant to conjure up a picture of plenty where your needs are going to be met. But why those two foods? I think they were chosen by God for a very specific purpose because they communicate something important. Follow me here. I believe God used milk and honey because of their distinct qualities. In a time when there was no refrigeration, milk spoiled quickly, especially in that hot climate. Probably within a day, you couldn't use it anymore. It was spoiled. Honey, on the other hand, never spoiled. It crystallizes, but it doesn't spoil. Some have called it the eternal food for that reason. Honey has actually been found in ancient graves that are hundreds, even thousands of years old, and according to scientists, it's still safe to consume that honey. Boy, does it last. Now think about this. Milk represented the temporary. You gotta get it now before it spoils. It's a meeting a temporary thing. Honey represented the eternal. And guess what? I know about all of us today, including me. All of us have needs, and all of our needs can be summarized in two categories, the temporal and the eternal. And our Lord Jesus says, I want to meet all of your needs in both of those categories. What are our eternal needs? Our eternal needs are the need for salvation, the need to have our sins forgiven, and to become a part of God's family and be saved from eternal punishment in hell, to have the assurance of a home in heaven. Those are eternal needs. Temporary would be the things that you and I need every single day, and we need them fresh every morning. God says, I want to provide both your temporary and your eternal needs. Boy, one of the verses that I dwell on every single week. It's, it's in my litany of verses that I, I meditate on. Is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. I would hope you would commit this to memory. God spoke through Jeremiah the prophet in this book called Lamentations. And he said, 
Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So why should we draw near to God? Because we have this great high priest who sympathizes and who gives us grace when we're feeling overwhelmed by our needs. And trust me, we all have needs. We do. Don't let them overwhelm you. Because Jesus says, I want to meet both the temporary and the eternal needs. And so if you learn nothing else from this message, please take this away. When you're hurting and you feel like the bottom is falling out of your life, please draw near to God. Don't run from God. Don't go the other way. Draw near to God because he truly cares for you. Oh, I hope you get that lesson today in your heart and in your soul. So there's the first lettuce. Let us draw near. But let's go on quickly. The second lettuce is let us hold fast. That's found here in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The NIV, I think, says something like, let us hold unswervingly to hope. So, so again, this is meant to be very personal. As I told you, it moves from doctrine to duty. It goes from creed to conduct. It goes from explanation to application. So, again, let's get real personal. Don't blurt out your answer, but think about it. What would you say is your level of hope today? I, th I think that's a relevant question. How, how robust is your hope? How solid, how confident is your hope? Dr. William Marston of New York University did a survey sometime back of 3,000 people, all different races and creeds, all different ages and backgrounds and socioeconomic levels. He asked 3,000 people, here's the question, what have you to live for? I like that question. It kind of gets at what people are hoping in. It kind of gets at what is most important. He said, what have you to live for? Dr. Marston was shocked at the responses. He said a full 94% of the people I surveyed we're simply enduring the present. Get this, enduring the present while they were waiting for the future. Does that describe you today? What is your level of hope? I spoke recently to one of the brothers in our fellowship here, a, a, a wonderful man who had recently been diagnosed with cancer, and it was fairly aggressive. And I'll never forget in that conversation as we talked about how he was feeling about all of this, and he took the conversation right to his hope in Jesus Christ. And I was sitting there thinking, I called you to encourage you. You're encouraging me, dude. This is awesome because you're reminding me of where our hope really lies as the writer here says in chapter 6, verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. So why do we draw near? Why do we hold fast? Because our hope in Jesus is like the anchor of our souls. 
Think about this for a moment. Most anchors throughout history have had a certain shape. Do you know what that shape is? They're kind of in the shape of a cross. Yeah, they got this hook thing at the bottom, but, but a, an anchor is basically in the shape of a cross. I find it interesting that God spoke through this writer in chapter 6, verse 19. He said, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul. You see, as followers of Jesus, we have this unshakable anchor. Our Lord Jesus Christ, and through his death on the cross, we have access to God, and we have advocacy through our high priest. I want to tell you, when you hold on to that anchor, it will get you through any storm. So that's why he says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Can I just tell you something I've learned throughout my years on this planet? If you've not learned this yet, maybe this will be a light bulb moment. People, no matter how wonderful they are, will always in some way let you down. I hope that's not crushing anybody right now. I hope that didn't just deflate you and take all the wind out of you. It's just something you need to know. I don't care how wonderful they are, and there are some awesome people. I hope you've got some of them in your life, but you just need to know this. People will always let you down. Why? Because they are H-U-M-A-N, human. That's why they will all, always let you down. But God will never let you down. Oh, I know you think that's just preacher talk. I know you think that's just some pious shibboleth that a preacher has to say. I'm telling you both from experience as well as watching the experience of so, so many others, God will never let you down. He is faithful. So let us draw near. Let us hold fast. But there's one final lettuce here in this salad bar of the Christian life. Let us consider how. I find that in verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. If you are reading from the NIV translation or possibly some other, there's a fourth lettuce, right? He goes on to use another lettuce. He says, let us not stop meeting together or something like that, as some are in the habit of doing. Now, the reason I didn't include four lettuces is because that verb translated there by the NIV, I wish they hadn't translated it that way because a little technical here, it's a participle. And it's really meant to modify the big verb. The big verb is let us consider how to stimulate one another. Meeting together is just one of the ways we do that. That's why it's a participle. It's just modifying the verb. It's telling us how we do it. And we do it by not, not discontinuing our getting together. And we do it by encouraging one another. Sorry for the technicality. Just had to throw that out. Lest some of you who were reading the NIV thought, why didn't he include this one? Because it's a participial type verb that modifies let us consider how. That's why. So 
let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A father was showing his young son through a church building when they came to a plaque on the wall. The curious little boy said, Dad, what's that for? His dad said, oh, son, that's a memorial to all the people who've died in the service. And the puzzled little boy said, Dad, which service, the 9 o'clock or the 11 o'clock? Now, I grew up on a farm in Tennessee around a lot of animals, all different kinds of animals. And I want to tell you, we had farm animals, we had pets, we had chickens, ducks, guineas, all kinds of fowl. It was amazing. Birds and all kinds of animals everywhere. It felt like our own little personal zoo at times. And I love animals to this day. I'll tell you one thing I've observed about animals, though. When an animal is wounded in some way, it usually goes to suffer alone. And you know what I've observed about people in the church? That's our tendency, too. Our temptation in the midst of pain, when the marriage is struggling, when we've just had a relational break with someone, when we're hurting in some way in our personal life, our temptation is not to hold fast, but to let go. Our temptation is not to draw near, but to run away. And our temptation is not to consider how, but to forget everything we thought we knew. That's just how it works. And we kind of get sucked into our own little vortex of pain and our own little echo chamber of misery, and our problems become the center of our universe. That's why this instruction is so counterintuitive. It's so radical. Don't miss what God's saying to you and to me today. He's saying, look, one of the keys when you feel pain in your life is to reach out to others. Because in your reaching out and helping others and showing genuine love to them, you're going to get helped in the process. Evie, Evie Hill was the dynamic African-American preacher in a church in inner city Los Angeles in the latter part of the 1900s. I met Evie on a number of occasions. We had him speak at Billy Graham events on a regular basis, a dynamic man, a wonderful, godly man. And during the Watts riots that went on, Dr. Evie Hill spoke truth to people on both sides of that divide, and he got a lot of criticism for it. In fact, he began to receive credible threats on his life and one day, he received a credible threat that anarchists were plotting to bomb his car. Well, both he and his wife went to bed that night very uneasy, had trouble sleeping. He woke up the next morning, and his wife was not at his side. He called her, but he couldn't find her anywhere in the house. She did not respond. And then he noticed that his car was gone, and then his heart began to pound. Oh, no. Oh, no. What's happened? But a few minutes later, his wife drove back up the driveway, and Evie Hill demanded, woman, what are you doing? I was so scared, she said. I just got to thinking. This community needs you probably more than it needs me. 
And if they're gonna rig that car to be bombed, I just wanted to be in it, not you. And E.V. Hill humbly said, I always knew my wife loved me, but that day I understood what love is all about. You see, love is putting the interest of others ahead of your own. Love involves feelings, but it's not mostly feelings. It's actions. Love spurs others on to be their best and to fulfill their destiny within God's will. Now, here's what I want to ask you. What are you doing right now in your life that does that for someone else? What are you doing to spur others on to love and good deeds? You see, according to this, one of the great remedies for suffering is that you begin to think about other people how you can help and encourage them because chances are they've got a lot of pain too. So how are you going to pull that off? You got to be connected to some people. You got to be around some other people. You can't isolate yourself and just be off on your own little island. That's the temptation when we're hurting though, isn't it? That's always been the devil's ploy. He always wants to get us alone so he can pick us off. So he'll create some rift between you and someone else in your small group or someone in the body in corporate worship. And in the forsaking of your assembling together, you set up this environment where you just turn more and more inward and you get caught in the vortex of your own pain. What's the remedy for that? Keep on getting together. Keep on encouraging one another. Now, I've got to address the elephant in the room, folks, because if I don't, it's going to be one big whopping elephant that just remains unaddressed and unacknowledged. But what do you do in the middle of a pandemic, huh? He says, don't stop getting together. But what do you do if there's a deadly pandemic taking hundreds of thousands of lives? What would this apostle say in a time like that? Honestly, I don't know, but I'll tell you what I think he would say. I think if he were standing right here on this platform today, I, th I think, I say this humbly because I certainly don't know for sure, I think he would say something like this. Listen, God gave you a good mind and some wisdom he wants you to keep on exercising that. So if you know that you're particularly vulnerable, then you need to take that into consideration. And if you need to zoom in instead of physically showing up for a while, that's cool. But I think he would go on and say, but don't you for one minute use a pandemic as a cop-out and diminish the value of fellowship. I think that's what he would say. I, I think. Don't know for sure, but I believe he would say something like that. I think he would go on and say, look, God gave us 59 one another's in the New Testament. You need to be getting together with folks and practicing that. So listen, don't diminish the value of fellowship. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And I would encourage you when you get together with other believers, 
Don't go to your small group just to get all your own needs met, although that's a good thing. I would encourage you to go to that small group or go to that time of corporate worship saying, Lord, would you help me to meet someone else's needs? Give me a word, Lord. Give me an encouraging word. Give me a look. Give me a smile, a hug, a note, a verse, a song. Give me something to encourage somebody because I want to spur them on to not give up and to be all God designed them to be. Why would I live that way when I'm hurting myself? Because that's what healthy disciples do. They turn out when they'd rather turn in. They'd show up when they'd rather disappear and just have a pity party. What spurs them on to do that? This is so good. This is so good. Verse 34b of the same chapter says, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do you see that? It has a great reward. God is saying to you today, look, when you keep pressing on, when you'd rather drift away, when you keep unselfishly showing up and ministering to others, when you keep thinking how you can stimulate and spur them on to love and good deeds, trust me, you're not going to lose your reward. And one day our sympathetic high priest is going to say to those of you who in the midst of your own pain kept opening up your own sympathetic heart to your brothers and sisters, he's going to say to you, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You kept pressing on even when you didn't feel like it. Oh, I want to hear that from my Lord, and I know you do too. And here's the bottom line. What should motivate us to keep living that other-centered life? Well, it's right here in verse 37 and following. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming... Who's that talking about? Jesus Christ coming again. He who is coming will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure of him. And then he says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We're not the shrinking back kind, he says. Uh-uh. Not mature disciples. We're not the ones who shrink back. We keep pressing on because we know that the Lord's coming is very, very near. Any moment he could come back and all the hurt would be over. And he will bring glory and honor and reward and joy for those who've given their lives away to other people in the midst of their own pain. So here's the bottom line as I close. I hope. Oh, I hope you will allow God, the Holy Spirit, to stamp these principles on your soul today. And if you do, you will be able to navigate the storms of life better than you ever dreamed. What will you do? You will draw near because you've got a high priest who says, I want to meet all your needs, temporary and eternal. 
You will hold fast because he is your hope, this anchor you have for your soul, and you will consider how because you're not doing this whole thing alone. Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. You will consider how to stimulate others to love and good deeds, and you will consider how you can encourage them as you all look forward to the day of the Lord's coming. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited about how God is going to use this to encourage broken hearts today and people who are tempted to drift. And if that's you, receive God's word today gladly because he has so much in store for you. Father, thank you that you've given us clear instruction. We don't have to scratch our heads and wonder what your word means. You've told us to draw near with confidence. You've told us to hold fast to this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. You've told us to consider how. May that be our practice this day. I pray for all of those who are feeling dejected, disappointed, downcast because of the bottom falling out of their lives. Help them to know that there is a whole, whole crowd of faithful witnesses from the past who've gone through similar things. And may we draw inspiration from their lives, this great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you will never let us down. Hallelujah. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.